Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 90. In this guest episode, we're talking with Professor Tanya Nieri of the University of California, Riverside, about what it's really like teaching at the most diverse UC in California. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for joining us. Hi, and thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. For sure. So first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, sure. Well, I am a sociologist, and I've been at UC Riverside for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years. And in my department, I teach in the areas, or I teach and do mentoring and other work in the areas of criminology and sociolegal studies and medical sociology. In the past, I've, I was previously affiliated with race and class inequalities because I do some work related to ethnicity. But since the development of the medical sociology specialization, I've um, shifted my focus there. As a scholar, I study social determinants of health. And I predominantly focus on Latinx populations and um, immigrant populations and families and youth. With regard to health, I'm interested in sort of broad measures of health, general health, but also uh, mental health. Lately, I have a large piece of work that's in a new area for me, which is really focusing on infant growth. And so that's looking at health in terms of growth and weight, not in terms of any particular physical condition. I'm a white woman and I come from an upper middle class background. I have a Christian background, specifically Catholic, although I'm not practicing now. Um, I'm a heterosexual woman. I don't have any specific disabilities. Um, and I mention all of these things because they factor into how uh, things I need to keep in mind as a teacher working in a diverse setting. I enjoy teaching. You know, I was trained predominantly as a researcher, but I did a lot of mentoring in a research position that I had prior to coming to UCR. And, you know, in that position, I realized that I, I wanted to be a professor to include not just research, but also teaching. And so I enjoy the teaching aspect of my job and I take it very seriously. And I, you know, aim to continuously improve my teaching. So I attend workshops and trainings and I read a lot. And I do things like this to, to learn from other people as well. So that brings us lovely, perfect entrance into the next question, which is, what do you wish you had known when you first started teaching? Sure. That you know now, that you if you could go back to Tanya Neary 12 years ago and say, hey, you should know about this and this and this when you're teaching, what would those things be? What, what do you wish you'd known? Yeah, I mean, I think more, if I could know more about how people learn, and how better to support students in the learning process. You know, I was always a very good student, so I didn't face a lot of struggles. So I didn't even have any of my own personal, like I never asked for an extension my entire life and was sort of always shocked when I had friends who would say that they did. Now I ask for extensions all the time. But yeah, so I, so, you know, I really had to learn about the struggles that other people face. You know, here's some of the things you might encounter, you know, and here's some strategies for, for dealing with that. I wish I had known, which I have learned over time, and now I find to be such a valuable insight, is that a good portion of teaching is coaching and cheerleading. Yeah, and if you don't address the emotional sort of aspects and the performance aspects, you miss a lot. Very true. 
students need encouragement. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see from your students? Yeah, I mean, I think one misconception is that students think sociology is an easy A. Um, and so sometimes students are like, wait, what? I got a B? Like, and they're shocked, you know, it's like, I, well, you know, why did you assume you'd get an A? I think that's just sort of a societal stereotype that the math and the hard sciences are, are hard, right? They even have that title. And I don't necessarily think sociology is a hard topic, but I do think you have to invest time, at least in my classes, that's, that's the way that it is. I don't think the material, there are some topics in any discipline that are harder to grasp. But I, I think more often than not, sometimes the tasks may be challenging. It's not so much that the content or material is, is difficult to grasp. And so students sometimes under plan for the amount of time things take. So that's misconception number one about sociology, I think. And yeah, I think another one is, yeah, that you know I can just sit down, open a book, read, and then be ready for, that I've learned. I think they perceive reading as studying, as a precursor to, for example, exam or activity preparation. So you have to read first, but then, then you have to do prepare for the whatever the assessment is, whether it's an exam or a paper or a, another activity. And I think that, I, I don't know if misconception is the right word for it, but I find a perception that I'm constantly trying to change for students is that students come to my office and frequently apologize. I'm sorry to bother you. And I really try to reframe that for them. If you're bothering me, that's my problem and not yours to worry about, but also you're not bothering me. Like you're paying me to be available to you to support you. And so really trying to have students see me as a resource for them and to see me as accessible and that I, I should be at your, I'm at your fingertips. Like you should view me as available um, and not, you know, hard to reach and mm -hmm. easy to ruffle. Mm -hmm. So that actually kind of dovetails with the next two questions. So the first one is just what kinds of things do you wish students knew when coming into college that you, you've, you've said, you know, that they see the teacher as someone that they should apologize to for wasting their time or for, you know, I, I, I don't want to bother you. I'm so sorry I'm bothering you. So that's, you know, one thing that they need to know is that you're approachable, that, that your job is to be the person there to answer their questions. But what are some of the other things that they just, not even misconceptions, but just sure. that they don't seem to know, like the chops they don't have yet? Sure, sure. Um, that uh, college will not be the same as high school. <laughs> college will not be the same as high school. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because we literally just recorded an, an episode uh, Sunday um, about that very thing. So go ahead, please tell us what yeah, your so, take on that. Yeah, so, you know, you, you will, you know, I do think you do more, so there's more work, and the nature of the activities is different. And I think, I mean, maybe all pedagogy is changing, and I, I hope also at the high school level, but, and I haven't been in high school in a long time, and my son is not yet in high school, but you know, we've learned a lot about pedagogy and how people learn and what are the best strategies. So I'm hoping that high school today is a little bit more interactive, you know, does a better job of, you know, applying to real life, um, isn't just lectures and exams, you know, those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm hoping that, but I certainly see that at the, at, at the higher education level. And so if students are coming from high schools where that's still the model, sort of a, 
you know, a textbook and you answer the questions at the end and that's kind of it. You will be asked to do things and have to move out of your comfort zone. And for example, you know, in a number of my classes, I ask students to write a literature review. And a literature review, you've never done that in high school. And, you know, one of the first things I tell them is this is not an essay. So you don't just write your ideas and your opinions, that there's a very specific structure to it. And you have options in this kind of thing. So so that that's just one example. I think, um, you know, co college is not the same as high school. You, you have to take much more individual responsibility. And so the best thing you can do is use the resources available to you when resources are being described. I mean, students will frequently say, oh, I didn't know that resource was available. And I think faculty have some responsibility because we don't often reinforce. I mean, students should be like, I know the writing center, right? But I think faculty under refer to, to resources. Um, and again, because they kind of put that responsibility on the student's shoulders and it is the student's responsibility to use those resources. But faculty play a key role in reminding them of their availability, informing them about what purposes they serve and translating the utility, like why invest your time in going to the writing center? Because it'll, in my class, that'll translate to a better written paper and you'll be more happy with your, the products you produce. You'll learn more, blah, blah, blah. Um, but also they can validate utilization of resources. I think students tend to perceive that if you use resources, it's because you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. You know. And that's just not true. It's just not true. It's just that, you know, college is different and there's a lot you're being asked to do. And so, you know, you can use resources to help you do it, but do it better. It's really interesting that you brought that up because we've actually done episodes on all these things you're talking about. And I remember when we were talking about this specific issue, we had a, an episode on you know, available services on campus, how professors perceive students who use them. Because I had a student tell me, I'm a loser if I have to go to the writing center. I'm a loser if I have to ask for help. And they were probably 20, 21, you know, around first year sophomore age. And I said to them, look, becoming a young adult is learning how to do it yourself. But becoming an adult is learning how to do it together. And they looked at me like I had just grown a second head and they're all, what? And I said, you don't do everything on your own by the time you hit your mid-20s. By the time you hit your mid-20s, you have to know where the resources are, how to connect with them, how to get answers for things that you don't know. And you will not always know everything. And that's totally okay. And they shook their head. They couldn't take that in. And there's also a, a cultural thing and that the subject of our next question. So I'm just going to toss it to the door now. So what are some of the challenges you see when you're teaching first-generation students? Yeah, well, so certainly I have a cultural style um, that's very reflective of my cultural background. For example, um, I'm very direct in my communication and like, I'm so comfortable with that. And I, I like, I love it when other people are like that with me, you know, tell me exactly what you think of me. In other cultures, that's rude. And so I have to be mindful of that it's also intersectional with various other identities. Um, you know, I have to be mindful of examples that I use in class. On a number of occasions, you know, I, I am misrecognized as Latina, and that is because I, I speak Spanish, so I can pronounce people's names in class properly, you know, assuming properly to them means with, with a Spanish accent, because some people have Spanish names but prefer an anglicized pronunciation. Um, you know, and I can use examples from 
my research involving the Latinx community. And so I'm familiar with things that sometimes, if, if you didn't know that I was, if you thought I was white, you might be surprised that I would know them. So just for example, I often play music before class. In the, in, I arrive early in class and play music uh, just as a way of light, A, I like music, B, students tend to like music. And so it's a way of sort of creating a more informal environment and maybe helping some people relax before class. And so I, I, you know, I work very hard at having a diverse array of music. Now that doesn't mean I meet everybody's needs because you could be from a cultural group and I play music from the cultural group, but that's not what your interests are. So, you know, I don't assume that if you're Latinx and I play a Spanish speaking song that you're gonna love it. I, I don't assume that. Um, in more recent years, I've been really conscious about my reading assignments and making sure that they reflect diverse voices. So I've, I've made quite a few syllabus changes to make sure that there's greater diversity, not only in terms of race, ethnicity, also in terms of gender and other types of social categories as well. Um, and including journals and also types of readings. So academic readings, but also maybe like visual representations of things, artistic displays of information. You all both are very familiar with the magazine put on by the ASA contexts. And I appreciate, for example, their photographic segments, you know, because they visually represent sociological concepts. And I really like that. So you know, including things like that um, as a reading. So, and then of course, to me, a big thing is, you know, addressing diverse students is drawing on their, I've made a lot of mistakes. Let's be clear. I've made a lot of mistakes and I've learned a lot. The good news is that I'm trying to pay attention and incorporate what I learn as I go. Matching life circumstances. So giving opportunities through my assignments and discussions to connect the course material to personal life situations, um, which are very diverse, right? So I try, I mean, I think in general, a good pedagogical principle is to give students a lot of choice. But on top of that, I think choice of topics and things like that can be very good for um, addressing the diversity in the class because students can tailor their work to their interests, um, which would be very diverse. I'm trying to think about what else. Dinor, the way you asked it was more like, what are the biggest challenges? Because I'm from my culture, I can miss things. So another way that I address that is I try to create a lot of avenues for feedback and create a safe space for, for feedback that says, you screwed up. <laughs> I have learned a lot from my students. I have really learned a lot from them being very courageous in giving me feedback. And just one very, I think, valuable example is you know, spring quarter, UCR went online, many other places went online, you know, it was, we were all learning. And it's not the way, for me at least, the way I'm teaching online, it's not online teaching in the classic traditional sense. It's online learning as a substitute for in-person learning. There's a lot of, you can, we can learn a lot from the online learning community, but I think we also need to recognize that many people are approaching it as a temporary substitute, right? looking for, they're looking for similarities to in-person instruction. And so strategies are not identical to what you would do in an online, purely online setting. Although we've, thank God, have learned a lot of wisdom from the online learning community. So that was, I had a lot of learning to do. And I also had a lot of learning to do with how do you teach students when they are experiencing, when the world, <laughs> me too, 
is experiencing crisis, right? Um, in May, June with the Black Lives Matter protests and the murders, uh, police murders. So, you know, I thought I was making changes and being adaptable. And I was really happy that the administration had given a lot of encouragement and flexibility, you know, for faculty to make changes and be accommodating. But, you know, what I learned is that I was underestimating the impact of the events on at least some people. Initially, for example, I modified my exam and I said it can be open book, I'll reduce the number of questions, but I, I had students approach me and say, that's not enough. We can't do the exam right now. And, and I did. I then subsequently canceled my exams and I am very comfortable with that decision. It wasn't my own resistance to being accommodating. I thought I was being accommodating. I didn't fully understand the depth with which people really needed greater accommodation. And, and I had brave students, you know, talk to me and I gave their comments consideration and was happy to be educated by them because in retrospect, that for me was the absolute right course. And I wish I had made it straight away. So I think creating a safe space for feedback, uh, including related to diversity issues is really important. What sorts of problems do you see your students having when they try to take their education into the real world, when they try to make what they're learning in class relevant to their lives? What kind of challenges do you see students having with that? Well, some feedback I get from students is that, you know, I'm happy to report that they say, you know, these my course, they're, what they've learned has changed their perspective. And so that's a good thing. But then what they encounter is resistance to that new way of looking at things. Sometimes it's with Family members, they'll say, well, I try and tell my family, oh, you know, what we thought isn't actually the case, um, or it's more complicated than that. So they get resistance from people to that sort of new learning. It's a valid question always. What's the point of this? <laughs> you know, if you're teaching something, you do have to ask yourself, what is the point of it? And I believe in learning outcomes. I believe in really being thoughtful about assessment. Why? What are you assessing for? I try to get you know, it's for me, it's not just knowledge, it's also skills. And while it is true that some of what I'm teaching students may not use going forward, like I teach research methods. If you choose to do research, you may not use a good portion of what I'm teaching you. But for those students, what I want them to understand is that when they consume information, well, so first of all, the general concept of like, what is knowledge and where does it come from, right? And the role of research in developing knowledge, you know, and, and consensus about what is. Um, and then also when they're consuming information, right? They can ask questions uh, about it and be critical of it and say, well, you know, who's that coming from? Or what was the sample and those kinds of things. I think some of what, we teach in academia is you have to teach things that some students will use and some students won't. But you, I think all of your classes should have something that each student can use after they leave, like, and meaning in their lives, whether it's again, before they graduate, during their graduation, stuff like that. I think that is important. And so I do try to think about that, like what can you use today? And I try to make assignments that are related to that. So I teach a class on interpersonal violence and I, you know, ask them, you know, we have assignments related to, you know, if someone came to you right now and I have, I break up the class into two, you know, who said that they're the perpetrator, or if they said that they're a victim of, of partner violence, you know, what would you do, right? So let's, let's role play a strategy where you actually provide support to somebody. I've heard students complain about what is the point of this? 
the students that I teach, they're very motivated. So they just suck up knowledge and they're very motivated. And, and I think also they want to learn skills and it, they, part of what they're learning, I think, or wanting to learn is what is this information for? Right. And so even if they decide, oh, I don't want to go down that path, that, that was still a valuable activity for them to say, now I know that's not something that I want. I think of that as preventing the quadratic equation moment. You know, I remember in, in high school algebra, the complaint from just about everybody who wasn't a math geek was, when am I ever going to use the quadratic equation again in my life, right? Oh, I ask that all the time. I remember my algebra teacher. I was like, wait, right. what's the point of this theory? Why do I care about this you know, equation? And I, and I, the thing is, I was very good at math. So, um, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, I would always ask, wait, how do you use this in real life? Yeah. But looking back, I don't regret learning it. I'm glad I did. And I, I did find it interesting. I just was an impatient to go do stuff in the world. But yeah, I mean, I think the concern broadly is, although I feel like I'm trying to address it, so I don't see it so much in my students, is get in my evaluations, like, what was the point of all of this? Um, I, you know, I'll say one complaint that I get is, you know, like I break down my assignments. So basically, I frequently have one assignment the whole quarter, but it just, it's broken down into five assignments. <laughs> students are like, five assignments. I was like, it was one assignment, you know, but that's my shortcoming that I need to better explain to them that these are really all one assignment and an opportunity to get feedback and revise at each level. You know, but I think sometimes students resist, you know, modern pedagogy. They want, and I've been told, you know, why don't you just lecture? I get that sometimes. And I know why, and I do try to explain to them why. Like I've, I've built up a lot of my syllabus explanations about my choices, and I do try to them and I train my TAs to try to reinforce that. Yeah, I'm. We're wondering how you're able to bring your research into your teaching. You're talking about bringing in the domestic violence stuff from CRIM uh, into some of your classes. Actually, I sort of I did a boomerang. I had early in my career, I had a very strong feeling that I shouldn't bring my research into my teaching because it was selfish and selfish. That was pretty much it. And I do think that is a concern. It can be, but I have, you know, now I don't think that anymore. Now I think that just like I want students to be whole people in their classes, I want to be a whole person in my class. And as a professor, I have a whole life as a scholar. So I, I do believe that it's appropriate if you have a good pedagogical reason for talking about your research to, to bring it into the class. So for example, I teach research methods, uh, many, many iterations of research, the research methods class. I would give extra credit for students to assist me in my projects with data collection. So they could see what survey research looked like in the field. You know, what does it mean to go to a school and go inside a classroom and say, hey kids, will you take this survey for us? I use examples from a, I have a randomized control trial where, so I will use examples of that to teach experimental uh, design. When I give examples in class for things, um, I, you know, I do draw on my own research. I haven't done that much assigning of my own readings, of my own publications at the undergraduate level, but I do do that at the graduate level. I have included my own work in the classes, you know, where it's, I think, appropriate. So that's really sort of the idea is I'm not trying to sell a book, but I do think it's important for students to see, to communicate how science can be fun. 
even if you choose not to pursue it, right? That there's value and meaning in it. And so just talking about examples of that and things that I've learned. And so I think there's a real value there because it's sort of like, it's a real life story. And in that sense, it's very valuable. Um, and I, you know, I recruit students from my classes all the time for research. So there's not a quarter that goes by where I don't have an undergraduate engaged in my own personal research. And I typically recruit them from my classes after they've been in my class. Yeah, I do think faculty, though, need to be honest with themselves. What is the pedagogical reason you're bringing it in? Or is it just a way for you to cut a corner and spend a little bit more time on your research? Yeah, I think the other thing I will say is that I also, I draw on the graduate students who I mentor. So I have them in as guest speakers because their work is even more on point than my own in many cases. So for example, Logan Mark presented on heterosexual college men's conceptualizations of sexual consent. And so he taught in the interpersonal violence class in when we were talking about sexual assault. Um, I teach race and ethnic relations and I had um, Min Yu do, present her presentation about Asian American college students' sense of belonging and the factors that influence their sense of belonging. And I've had Allison Monterosa come and speak about um, a, a domestic violence. Um, so yeah, I, so I feel like graduate students are also a great resource. And of course I learn you know, because of them and mentoring them on their research, I, I'm learning a lot about the topic too. So it's just like this great resource. And plus, there's so many good things that come from having graduate students present. So first of all, I'm a white woman. So if, if the graduate student is a person of color, and in particular URM, it's good for students to see a face in an academic setting presenting research. So it's to give a model for students to see themselves and, um, and also to see themselves in a potential future career for themselves, right? So they can say, oh, person went to grad school and, and also typically those people are younger. And so there's just sort of a, and plus anytime you introduce something novel, students get interested, right? And so I don't think I'm a boring professor, but the same thing day in and day out is boring. And so if you can bring another face in a different voice, um, that's really helpful. And often the, so Logan, for example, also brought his undergraduate research assistants in to co-present with him, two of which were in the class. So it was really great. What sorts of things do you find yourself fighting for or advocating for, for your students? So the first thing that comes to mind is I advocate for faculty to treat students as whole people. We're not just here for an intellectual exercise. When students come into our classroom, they bring everything with them. And it's ridiculous to expect otherwise. And faculty need to start acting accordingly, right? And so that means that obviously sort of the old news that students have expertise as well, that's kind of old news, but I still think that faculty could do a better job of drawing on that expertise in the way they, in their courses. But also that students need accommodation and they need coaching and encouragement, right? Cheerleading. And that's a huge part of it. And, you know, I am not a psychologist and have no pretensions to be one, but I can sit and listen. And so if you cannot sit and listen and you don't know how to comfort somebody, or don't know how to provide guidance to somebody who's in distress, you need to take some classes or read a book, you know, or go to some training because it's not that hard. I'm not providing psychological counseling, but faculty aren't great at asking people, how are you? So, I mean, and I have to work at this, right? My cultural style is to get to the point. And I'm also very task oriented. And so like, I have to constantly overwhelm that impulse to be like, okay, what can I do for you today? You know, so I try, my first question is, 
how are you? How are things going? Tell me a little bit about you. And I try to, rem and I learn people's names, right? They have a name. Everybody can learn it. It is an acquired skill, but you can acquire it. Some people will be better at it than others, but students appreciate the effort, right? So knowing people's names and also remembering things about them, you know, about their personal lives and then following up, you know, with parents, it's so easy. Student parents, just ask them about their kids and, you know, they immediately light up and it's, you know, already you're bonding with them just because, you know, they, they're sharing something that most of the time is a positive thing about which brings them a lot of joy. And anyway, so, you know, really acknowledging the whole person. So taking an interest, incorporating that into the classes and providing accommodations um, and validating the normalcy of that. You know, I tell students all the time, 50% of the students ask for accommodations of one kind or another. So you are not abnormal and this is not a shortcoming on your part. Success has many pathways, right? And so if, I mean, that's all we care about is success. So let's get you to it. So that's a big one. Um, and then related to that, of course, is getting faculty to refer, refer students to resources and validate it. Yeah, so th those are two big ones. What are the things that I advocate for? Yeah, and I would say one thing that I'm currently advocating a lot for is, is faculty need to be okay with need to acknowledge that they are likely making mistakes, particularly as it relates to diversity. And that includes faculty of color and non-faculty of color, URMs and non-URMs. And I'm not saying it's all equal. The mistakes might be more serious in one case than another, you know, and those kinds of things. But we all can be learning about each other's groups um, and each other's ways of communicating um, challenges and those kinds of things. And because, you know, so much of what I see is, you know, we see, and I get a lot of complaints about our microaggressions. And, you know, often when I've spoken with the faculty, you know, they're horrified, you know, but it's very actionable, like, okay, I can do something about that next. And I certainly, I can give you a long list of my own errors. I don't say things like sue me, you know, or that doesn't rise to the level of legal action. It doesn't matter. Somebody felt bad about it, even if they're wrong you know, that you didn't actually do what they say. They think you did and they have this feeling about it. So the question is, what can you do going forward? And it's just, I view dealing with microaggressions as, as quite manageable. <laughs> you know, you just have to say, A, it's important for me to pay attention. B, it's important for you to be forgiving with yourself and your own mistakes. And, but, and you have to commit to, to keep learning and being open to the feedback. And those, those are big things for me right now. So you've talked a lot about kind of the emotional work in teaching, how it's part coaching, which Adam and I would completely agree with. It's part cheerleading. So when you teach, how much of the work is content and skill development and how much of it is motivation or the emotional part? I do a lot of encouragement in class during lectures and discussions. So when I ask questions, I try to lay the format. I'm looking for your ideas. I really look forward to hear what you have to say. When somebody says something, I will validate it. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that you're sharing. And sometimes, you know, you have those days when nobody's talking and, you know, I'll do silly things like finally somebody volunteers and I'll say, everybody, let's give this person an applause. You know, just goofy stuff like that, that also sort of says it's also okay to have down days and not, or be afraid to speak, but you're still responsible, right? So I do think I address a lot of that emotional stuff, you know, just in our back and forth exchanges, in my email communications, um, I convey, 
in explicit terms that I believe in them. You know, I, I say that I believe in you. And I have exercises that also help get them in a mindset of self-belief and confidence. So before we've I've done met, guided meditations, often at the beginning of a quarter, I will ask them to write down, you know, what do you think are the assets that you bring to this class? So to get them, it's on paper, they wrote it. These are the things that are going to enable them to be successful in class. Yeah. And I, I really, when I, and again, I have to work on this in email because I really want to be efficient and be like, yes, you know, and not sign my name or not say anything else. So I say things like, thank you for reaching out to me. You raised an important question, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that to me, those are all ways of emotionally connecting with students. I show enthusiasm. I say, I'm really, thank you for being here today. I'm really glad to be with you today. I thank them for coming and I tell them I'm really happy to see them. So I, I feel like I do a lot of that. And that's mostly through my interactions with them, whether it's through email or in person, in class or through office hours. My feedback on papers, TAs do a lot of grading for me. I, I try to encourage them to also remember that you have a cheerleading role and convey belief in them. So we'll also send mid-quarter, you know, students who are getting a D, D or below, you know, we reach out to them. And we'll list a series of resources, but we will say to them, we believe that if you take action now, you know, you can succeed in this class. We want to help help you and we believe in you, you know. So even then when we're basically saying, warning, 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 you're headed to trouble. Um, we're saying like, hey, this is not over yet and don't give up and we're here for you. We're with you. Yeah, I think that is so important. I love the tools that you're giving all the teachers who will be listening to this for their toolboxes, because I think a lot of us don't realize that that cheerleading is just a crucial component. And 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 we see it a lot in the K-6 area, right? We see it with teachers who are working with little kids and, you know, preteens. But when they get into, even just into high school, never mind college, it's like, nope, they're just supposed to do the work and I, you know, it shouldn't be my job. And it's, and a lot of that cheerleading is characterized as hand-holding or spoon-feeding, and it's not. And so I think that that's a really valuable tool for the toolbox. And I just want to say one other thing that I think is very important. I also have to manage my own emotions. Sometimes my students disappoint me. And it's very easy to chastise them. But that is not so helpful. <laughs> you know, that's not so helpful. You have to be very careful giving feedback in those moments. But on, on the flip side, I've also found that being honest with my students. Exactly. But that's why I say careful. You have to choose your words. It's okay to say, I'm surprised by the performance. I thought, you know, I was going to see better work, but I feel confident that if we talk about it, maybe we can go, you know, the next round can be better or whatever. Like, let's talk about what happened. Does my perception reflect your perception, right? So it's off, they may think they've got A papers. Well, then something broke down in the communication about expectations, right? And I think sometimes our students frustrate us. And that's okay, right? We are whole people too. But we have to, you can't yell at your students. You can't say how disappointed, we are so disappointed in you. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Well, maybe I didn't communicate or maybe, you know what I mean? Like, so it's also about having a conversation, stopping the class and saying, what happened here? What do you think happened? You know, did you, you know, and sometimes students will say, 
yeah, we, we screwed up. We did not put the time in. So they take responsibility for it. And, and I also, you know, try really hard to allow students to take responsibility for themselves. I can't make them do stuff. I can be supportive, but I have to also be okay with the choices that they make. And sometimes students will choose family over school in a moment, and that's an appropriate choice. Or paying the bills over school, and those are appropriate choices. And I don't always know the reasons. So to chastise is to make simple something that is probably more complicated, or at least across the students, there are diverse reasons. And so I think it's important to take time to stop and say, all I can do is control what I do. So right, I can stop and I can say, was there a lack of clarity about my expectations? You know, what would you need going forward? You know, those kinds of things. Just, and to say, I'm in it to win it. Okay, that didn't go well, but the class is not over. How do we go forward? And um, and also what lessons can I learn for future classes? So, you know, I, I really have to work to curtail sometimes. Like I, I can have a short fuse sometimes. Speaking to what you said about our students have a full life, I was in a meeting yesterday because there's a group from my campus that is going to be going to the American Association of Colleges and Universities fully online virtual thing this year. And I said that one of the things I'm looking for, because we were asking, you know, what do you, what do you want to see in the sessions? And I said, you know, one of the things that I'm looking for is how we can prioritize both pedagogy and equity. And how can we make people understand that our classes are probably never going to be our students' first priority, no matter how much we think they should be, they aren't. Because paying the bills is more important or taking care of an ill family member, especially right now during COVID is more important. And Ken O'Donnell, who's the uh, vice provost who was leading this group, he said, I never thought about that. We need to think about this. You know, this is something that we need to put out there that your, your students are not only in your classroom and they do have many other demands on their time and many other priorities that are probably more important than your sociology class or your criminology class or your chemistry class will ever be to them. Yeah, and I think it's also about autonomy. They are autonomous beings and they can do whatever they want. And we should not assume that we know what's best for them. What we can tell them is, if you want X out of this class, you have to do this. We can tell them that, but then validate their choice. They can do it or not. And they're not stupid if they don't do it and they're not whatever other negative adjective. So that's so important. And I, that's a big thing that I try to, you know, an earlier questions were about like, you know, what do you try to advocate for is that, you know, to just not judge our students. What would you say to anxious parents? Like if you had the chance to address the parents of your students who are high achievers and very, very, you know, committed to doing well, but they're also stressing out all the time, which means they're probably coming from an anxious family situation. What would you say to the anxious parents? Yeah, well, I will say in my 12, 13 years, I've never had a call from a parent, um, not once. And I think in large part, we tend to have older students. Many of my students are parents themselves and living independently or living as adults. So that's my speculation as to why I've never gotten that. But also, you know, we have many first-generation college students. And so it may be those parents wouldn't know what would I say. I don't know what the requirements are. But if I did receive a call from a parent... I would respond to them emotionally. I hear that you're concerned and that's great that you are committed and concerned about your child's future. And I, you know, I think that's great. It's really valuable to have parents involved in their, in their children's lives. I can't discuss your particular child's um, circumstances for the following reasons for blah, 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 blah. 
Um, but what I can tell you is these are the types of resources that we have available here to support students. And so, you know, when students need guidance, this is how I refer them. So I would speak in generic terms. These are resources that exist. And I'm happy to answer any questions, you know, if they have questions about an assignment or whatever, you know, but again, maybe if I got more of these, you know, I might be more like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you have to take up these issues with your child. Please encourage your child to come and visit me and I'm happy to speak with them directly. Yeah, so is there anything that Adam and I forgot to ask you that you want to go over? I don't think so. I'm, I've enjoyed the discussion. So that's what we have for you in episode 90. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 91, when we'll talk about how to handle grad school. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.